Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Football frenzy and fury. Italy celebrates the Euros' victory, the match though marred by racism. Space surge, Branson's success sends Virgin Galactic shares into orbit. And Venom victory, Marvel's Black Widow becomes a streaming smash. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to a new week on First Move. But not before, of course, we've discussed an incredible weekend of sport and space. The first billionaire blasts off beyond the sky and England's players should hold their heads up high. Football may not be coming home, but the cup does head to Rome. And so shall we later in the show. Congratulations to a triumphant Italy. And congratulations, too, to Richard Branson, also safely home after his risky space endeavour. We'll have all the latest on that. Plus, have you ever wondered about the risks of collisions in space? Well, we'll discuss with the CEO of space junk tracker, Leo Labs. Now, from daring risk takers to a risk-off Monday for global stock indices, the US and Europe consolidating after last week's gains, though we do begin at record highs, and I sound like a broken record. Major banks among the big winners last week, up 4% Friday, ahead of the start of earnings season this week. And lots of important data and commentary coming up too. Fed Chair Jay Powell will testify before Congress midweek. We have all important US consumer price inflation data on Tuesday. And China's second quarter growth numbers coming up too. Expect a sharp slowdown from the first quarter's 18% spike. Yes, you heard me right. Nothing slow, though, about Asia's gains. Driven by China's move late Friday to help boost bank lending, UBS says the additional liquidity could give all global stock markets an overall boost. I think that's a welcome offset to the cybersecurity crackdown that's unsettling big tech. U.S.-listed Chinese stocks are now down more than 10% this month after China tackled Didi Global. We are live in Shanghai for all the latest details on that, too. So lots to discuss. Let's get to the drivers. In the end, it's coming home, but it's coming to Rome. Italian footballers are back home celebrating their European Championship victory with the nation after edging England on penalties in a nail-biting final. Barbie Nadal is in the Italian capital for us. And Barbie, incredible scenes, incredible scenes of celebration yesterday. I have to say, after 18 months of, of suffering and struggle, it was, a, it was a heartwarming moment, I have to say. Oh, yes. I mean, the, the city erupted last night. The entire country erupted. You know, this has been a very tense couple of months, you know, trying to understand if they could have this tournament, if they could do it in front of live audiences. And then to have it start in Italy and to have it end here in terms of bringing home that cup. Let's listen to what a couple of the excited fans had to say last night right after the win. An infinite joy. It reminds us of 2006 when we beat France. And in the penalty shootout, after 15 years, the penalty shootout is always more beautiful. Magnificent. Now, you know, when you listen to these fans, they're not talking about what happened last night. They're talking about what happened every single possible match until last night. And they'll be discussing it until they get out there again. You know, this is a win not just for this team. It's for the country. It feels united. And for the first time in 18 months, you feel optimism in Italy, Julia. It's, as I say, a heartwarming thing to behold. Um, 
and 2006, the World Cup victory, of course, and the World Cup next year. So, um, yes, we'll be back. England will be back. Barbie Nadal, thank you so much and enjoy the celebrations. Safe celebrations, we hope. Meanwhile, in Britain, there's been condemnation at racism levelled towards some of the England players after Sunday's defeat. Salma Abdelaziz is in London for us. Salma, it's, it's really sad. It should be a welcome home victory for heroes that did incredibly well to get to the final, instead of which everyone's talking about the racism that some of those penalty takers faced afterwards. Julie, I think a lot of us woke up today to almost a sort of double heartbreak. Not only did mm. England lose that match. And this morning, now the backlash. Three of those players, Sancho, Marcus Rashford, and Saka, who missed those penalty kicks, are now facing vile uh, racist abuse online. Uh, Over a thousand tweets have been deleted. That's what Twitter told CNN. They also told CNN that several accounts have been suspended for again engaging in this terrible racist attack against these players. But this is bigger than that. We all expected, I have to say, I for one expected when those penalty kicks were lost that this is exactly how it's going to turn out. But what's new here, Julia, is this England team. They have, from day one, said they're going to use their platform. They're going to use the spotlight they have to really push for change and to push for reforms that are near and dear to their heart. That's something that the manager, Gareth Southgate, had penned a letter to the country essentially saying, I want to have a new form of nationalism through this team. I want one that is progressive, that is inclusive. I want my players to follow those social causes that are important important to them. And of course, that is racial equality and social justice. Take Marcus Rashford, for example, again, one of the people facing abuse online today. He had advocated for free school meals for the poorest in this country during coronavirus, uh, something that he faced off with in the government. And this is not an isolated incident, Julie. I think that's what's really tragic here. There's been a very uh, vehement backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement. Critics will tell you that backlash really starts at the very top with Prime Minister Boris Johnson's administration, an administration that refused to condemn fans when they were booing players for taking a knee, Uh, an administration that has failed to recognize that systemic racism exists in this country. So there's really a sense that this honeymoon period that we had with an England national team that was proud, that was inclusive, that was progressive, this hashtag choose love, the images of the players coming from all different backgrounds with with slogans like immigration brought this team together. That really, it feels so far today, Julia. And I would think everyone is asking the question, is that vision of a more inclusive nationalism, will that survive even if the team lost the game? Yeah, such a great point. I I love the words of uh, Manchester United as well when they said, look, we look forward to welcoming uh, Marcus home. One kick won't define you as a player or person. And um, nor will this unforgivable abuse. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you for that report there. Space tourism is one step closer to becoming reality. British billionaire Richard Branson has successfully reached the edge of space on a rocket plane he helped fund. His flight on Sunday opens the door to potential commercial flights in the future, as CNN's Rachel Crane reports. This flight was nearly two decades in the making, and the company saying that Richard Branson's maiden flight was flawless. And nobody more excited about that than the company's founder and new astronaut Richard Branson himself. I had the opportunity to speak with him following the flight about the excitement and the energy of it. Take a listen to what he had to say. I've dreamt of going to space since I was uh, a a kid. Um, uh, I've always pictured what it would be like. Um, 
uh, and it was just far more extraordinary than uh, than I could ever ever imagined. Um, from the uh, from going naught to 3,000 miles an hour in uh, seven or eight seconds, uh, being pressed back into the seat, uh, the roar of the the roar of the rocket, uh, to arriving in space, uh, and and the and the silence, um, and uh, you know to to looking out of the window to seeing our our glorious glorious Earth. Uh, the, the colours of the sky, uh, to unbuckling and, and uh, floating, uh, just just literally lifting, lift, just going off to the ceiling and floating, look, looking back down on these big windows that are now the spaceships upside down, facing back down to the earth, uh, seeing these three uh, float float around underneath me like uh, you know giant fish. Um, get out of my way! I want to see the earth. <laughs> um, and um, uh, and then of course you know when we when we came back into the Earth's atmosphere, the the shuddering as you as the spaceship comes back in. Um, uh, anyway, we just we just had a pretty extraordinary oh God, day. But luckily for him, this was not a dream. This was reality, and space enthusiasts all around the globe are celebrating. That's because Virgin Galactic and Branson hope that this fourth manned spaceflight will help usher in a new era of space travel. The company saying that they expect to start their commercial operations in early 2022. That's when people like yourself and I could potentially one day hop a flight on their vehicle, but it's gonna cost us. Right now, those tickets selling for around two $200,000 a pop, a cost that Virgin Galactic has said might go up before it comes down. And CNN's Kristen Fisher is with us now from New Mexico. Kristen, great to have you with us. You know, I love that scene when his granddaughter met him and he said um, in that press conference where he was clearly emotional, uh, his three-year-old granddaughter said, Papa's been to the moon and he didn't have the heart to correct her. Just <laughs> incredible scenes this weekend. They really were incredible scenes. I, I, I got a kick out of that, too, because it's such a, a a common mistake that not just kids, but adults make. And, you know, one of the big differences about what Virgin Galactic and Richard Branson did yesterday to, compared to what most people think about uh, when they think of space is he's not going to the moon. He was not even going fully into orbit, which means you're actually, you know, orbiting the planet. This was just a suborbital spaceflight, which means you go up, you go down. And... A lot of people think, wow, you spend all this time, money, and energy just for, you know, a few minutes of weightlessness. Why? And I think Sir Richard Branson said it pretty well when he said, you know, the reason I'm doing this is for my grandkids who thought I was going to the moon. It's for your grandkids. It's for everyone because he wants humanity to get a chance to experience what astronauts call the overview effect. And that is when you see Earth from afar. And most astronauts talk about when you see it, what a profound impact it has on you as a person because you, you can see just how fragile our planet is, how fragile humanity is, but you also realize that there are no boundary lines between countries. There, You can't see that. Uh, you can also see how, how thin and fragile the Earth's atmosphere is. And many astronauts come back to planet Earth when they land and try uh, to become more of an environmentalist and uh, preserve the planet any way they can. So that's the ultimate goal here. And of course, hey, flying into space at Mach 3 probably sounds pretty fun too. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. He said he's going to give it a break for a while, or at least give his family a break from right. uh, the tensions of it. And of course, we get to enjoy <laughs> Jeff right. Bezos going up in uh, less than two weeks' time as well. Kristen, great to have you with us. Thank you. And welcome to CNN, Kristen Fisher. Great to Thank have you. Thank you. Thanks. 
All right, let's move on. China is further tightening its grip on homegrown tech companies. It's proposed a new rule for firms looking to go public on overseas stock markets. Any Chinese company with over a million users will have to undergo a cybersecurity review before IPOing. David Culvert joins us now. I think Didi's probably saying at this stage, David, now you tell us. That remains an open, uh, an open question here. But we've always said data is the new oil. And I think this really brings it home. Data is critical and it's everything to China. Well, and you mentioned Didi, Julia, and they felt yet another round of punishment from the Cyberspace Administration over the weekend. 25 of the other apps that they run here in China have likewise been banned from the App Store. Now, that follows, of course, what was their ride-hailing app, their main one here, uh, likewise getting pulled from the App Store. And then you also had the halting of any new users being added. But the Cyberspace Administration is really carving what many are looking at as rather new territory here. They're exerting more and more control. It's putting Beijing certainly in the power play here. And they're going after these tech companies with, as you point out, these intricacies of proposals, though it's not really clear if it's actual proposal so much as an implementation of a, of a new policy. They like to frame it as though there will be public opinion moments, in which case that policy could be then changed a bit and the measure could take different shape. But as of now, this seems to be where they're going, and that is one of two. First, as you point out, that any company looking to list overseas and they have more than a million users are going to have to subject themselves to some of the scrutiny of the Cyberspace Administration. And the second part of that will be any company who has IPO material and is looking to go forward with that same procedure will likewise have to submit for review. A lot of this is, of course, following uh, Didi's, what has many been, uh, many have looked at to be uh, heavy scrutiny and really, really understood by um, many of the analysts that we speak with that it's kind of uh, unknown where it's going to go from here because you have other companies, it's not just Didi, other ride hailing services, truck hailing services, online recruitment apps who are starting to feel it as well. And then you can separate out the Cyberspace Administration and go to another agency that's coming down hard on Tencent because they, over the weekend, were told that two of the top video game streaming apps that they had hoped would be part of a massive merger here can no longer come together. The concern from the state council was that that would perhaps monopolize the marketplace. There's a lot of uncertainty, and a lot of folks are perhaps looking at this more so as Beijing exerting its power, Julia. But at the same time, you have some who say, well, this is an industry that also at sometimes needs regulation, and perhaps this is it here in China. Yeah, no one's bigger than Beijing. And this is a real uh, rocket, I think, to, uh, to big tech. But to your point as well, and I think this is important, it provides clarity. If you're company is this big, you're going to be scrutinized by the cybersecurity regulators. And also for U.S. investors, at least you know this will be done before you ever come to market, not happen after the event has happened with them with Didi. David, great context as always. Right. Thank you. David Culver there. All right, here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Cuba has seen its biggest anti-government protest in years. Thousands of people marched in cities across the country on Sunday. Many said they were speaking out about a lack of freedom, a worsening economy and the government's response to the pandemic. Some even called on the president to step down. 
Unrest in provinces near Johannesburg, South Africa, intensified today with police firing rubber bullets and tear gas at looters. Protesters are reacting to the imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma, who is serving a 15-month sentence for contempt of court. Military forces will be deployed to quell the activity. Police in Haiti have arrested a man they say helped to orchestrate the assassination of President Jovenel Moyes. The suspect allegedly worked with a Florida-based Venezuelan security firm to recruit 26 Colombian mercenaries and two Haitian Americans. A manhunt is underway for five more suspects. All right, still to come here on First Move, Earth's orbit is getting more congested and not just with billionaires. I speak to the CEO of Lear Labs, which steers Musk and Co. safely through 250,000 pieces of space junk. And Black Widow Bites, the opening weekend breaks pandemic records. A marvelous exception? Or is the summer blockbuster back? That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, the dawn of the space tourism era this weekend and the dawn of a new trading week on Wall Street just ahead. The Nasdaq set to hit fresh records and an added kicker, the EU's decision to pause digital tax talks in order to sweeten global tax reform negotiations. Reopening winners like travel, tourism and energy are weaker pre-market as the Delta variant spread continues. Reflation stocks bearing the action in the bond market too, where yields are lower ahead of a busy week on U.S. Treasury auctions as well. Lots of issuance this week. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, meanwhile, set to announce later today that further easing of coronavirus restrictions will go ahead, but he will implore citizens to remain vigilant. Pfizer, meanwhile, set to meet with US officials today over plans to develop COVID booster shots and whether they are in fact needed so soon. There's no debate, though, about the desperate need for initial vaccine doses in the developing world, something the IMF, the World Bank and the World Health Organization have said could be tackled by creating technology transfer hubs, training facilities where nations are equipped with the skills and the science to produce their own. In South Africa, a biopharmaceutical company called Biovac is set to be part of this process. It's hoping to soon make mRNA COVID-19 vaccines from start to finish in the country. Dr. Moreno Makwana is the CEO of Biovac, and he joins us now from Cape Town. So fantastic to have you with us. Just start by explaining what Biovac already does prior to the pandemic and how and what role you were playing in distributing vaccines across South Africa and beyond. Uh, thank you, Julia. So um, we are a fairly young company in the vaccine space. We were established about 17 years ago. And the aim of uh, having Biovac was to revive vaccine manufacture in South Africa. Uh, as you may know, and your, your listeners may know well, that Africa does not have much vaccine capacity. Mm. So our company was actually founded on the back of establishing, re-establishing vaccine manufacture because South Africa used to have vaccine manufacturing for many decades, but all of that ceased towards the end of apartheid. So... Uh, the aim of the company was to revive vaccine manufacture. And I think we probably now know through COVID why it's so important to have vaccine manufacturing on the continent. Yeah, we heard last week on the show more than 90 percent of vaccines that are distributed across the continent are imported. So the challenge is, is truly very clear, I think. Talk about the role that you're likely to play in these transfer, these technology transfer hubs, because this feels like a critical part of growing some greater independence over vaccines in the future? 
Yes, so um, maybe I'll start answering your question by talking about how we've been going about building vaccine manufacturing capacity and where this hub would fit in. So as you can imagine, in South Africa and in Africa, it's quite difficult, you know, in terms of funding for R&D, like you would typically have in Europe or in the US. So we started um, the vaccine manufacturing capability on the back end with importation of vaccines. And this was uh, for routine vaccines. And we then got into sterile manufacture, which is typically called fill finish manufacturing capability or it's also called drug product uh, manufacturing capability. So BioVac and others in South Africa do have full finished capability. What is really lacking is the drug substance, which is the active pharmaceutical ingredient manufacturer. And you can either enter into tech transfers with those that would be willing to transfer the drug substance to you for you to be able to be able to manufacture vaccines from scratch, or you can develop them from scratch. So the WHO, um, the World Health Organization, uh, then came up with this concept of setting up a hub where we could start from the bottom up and really develop mRNA vaccines, starting with COVID, and not only have them for South Africa, but it would serve as a, as a hub that would develop uh, the vaccine and also serve as a training hub and share with others. So you would have what they call a hub and spoke model, where the hub would really be the initial recipients of the technology, develop the vaccine, and then share that technologies with others, which would be the spoke. So other countries on the continent or even beyond the continent would be able to then be recipients of the technology that would come from the hub. And that is broadly the concept of uh, of what the World Health Organization has put together, and they then selected South Africa as the first uh, country uh, to host this hub, and uh, we're very fortunate that our company uh, is one of those that will be participating in there. I mean, there's two things here for me, and you said it, there's been a lack of investment in the research and the development. Do you have in South Africa the capabilities of creating your own vaccines from your own research with the mRNA vaccine platform, or does it require, at least in the short term, borrowing the technology and, and patents in order to be able to create the vaccines that have already been developed by the likes of, of Pfizer or Moderna? Where are we today? Because there's a short-term demand and then there's the longer-term play. Absolutely. Even before I talk about mRNA, I think where South Africa has always stood in terms of its strengths has been on the downstream manufacturing side, as I say, you know, with sterile manufacturing uh, capability. And then the other strength that the, com uh, that the country has is on the universities with the know-how and the skills that would come from an academic perspective. What is missing is the link between that upstream academic side and to take the products right through to commercialization. And is that missing piece, uh, middle piece that has been missing. And so in order to fulfill that uh, missing piece is that we, we then have to embark and take the product right from academia right through. That's one model. The easiest, Julia, would be if we were to have others that would share the technology so that we can be able to call it plug and play. Uh, mm -hmm. And that would be the quickest scenario. So the World Health Organization is working on two scenarios. One where nobody wants to share technology with the hub. And therefore, we would need to develop from scratch 
using local academia and also overseas academia and others that are in the industry to start from scratch. That would take a little bit longer than a company or, or an organization sharing the technology and say, guys, I've come this far with the technology. I'm in clinical trials. I've, I've even commercialized it. Here's the technology. I'm willing to share it with you. That would be the quickest way, but we have to work on both scenarios. And, uh, and WHO is working on, on both scenarios, hoping that the, the one that would take us uh, to commercialization sooner would come uh, in, into being. But if not, there is a backup option. How optimistic are you? And, and are those conversations being had with the current holders of the patents of this technology, the Pfizer's, the Moderna's of the world? How optimistic are you that they will provide the information and, and let you get cracking on, on making these vaccines? Well, I think what is encouraging and really it's the, it's the WHO that's spearheading these discussions, that the discussions are being had. So people are willing to have the discussions. Mm. Now, what I don't know is what the conclusion of those discussions are. Uh, and I think we'll have to wait a few weeks to see to what extent those are willing. But I know that, you know, more than five organizations, those with either commercially available mRNA or those that are still in development. So there are multiple discussions that are being had. As I say that that is, you know, I don't know how those will land. I'm hoping that they would, you know, they would land well. Uh, but as I say that if those don't work out well, then the know-how would need to be built from scratch. I think mRNA technology from what all of us have now learned, and I think a lot of us have undergone a crash course over the past 12 months about <laughs> mRNA, we is that it's certainly, it's certainly possible. And even infrastructure-wise, I think, you know, I think as a country, we can do it. What we need to work out is a few issues. Firstly, around patents. Yeah. Secondly, is around the inputs. So it requires quite a lot of raw materials that would have to be coordinated to get through. And some of those come from only a few suppliers. But, but technically, we've learned that it's certainly feasible to do mRNA if the missing pieces were to come together. Obviously, working with a partner that's already in the, in the space would be much better. But if that doesn't happen, I think we are all prepared to go on the long road and hopefully learn and ultimately have not only a product, but have the full capability to respond even beyond COVID. Marina, I have about 10 seconds. How long, if you have to go it alone and do it yourself? Are we talking years? Will it take years? It would probably take us about two to three years, you know, right. if we had to go on our own you know, versus a 12 to 18 month process with a partner. Wow. We need to work out a way to compensate the producers of these mRNA vaccines for their intellectual property and get the information to you ASAP. So thank you for your work to you and your team and for joining us on the show today. And we'll stay in touch. The CEO of Biovac there. Great to thank have you. you on. It's a pleasure. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's the first trading day of the week and tech is leading the charge once again, soaring to new records. We're up some four-tenths of one percent. The EU, as I mentioned, helping sentiment after putting on hold digital tax talks on some of the tech giants that were set to take effect this month. That's the hope, is that they can facilitate the broader tax talks across the G20. Chinese tech remains under pressure, meanwhile, with Didi Global down some 3% in early trade after last week's 22% drop. 
The ride-hailing giant warning today that Beijing's move to pull 25 of its apps from mobile stores will have a, quote, adverse impact on revenues. And from Didi Gloom to Virgin Galactic investors, over the moon. This weekend's test flight with Branson on board moves the company one step closer to ferrying paying customers into near space. Shares giving up some of their recent gains in early trade. But shares still up more than 100 percent year to date. And therein lies the key. Tesla shares higher. CEO Elon Musk is set to defend Tesla's purchase of solar panel firm SolarCity in court today. A shareholder lawsuit claims the deal turned out badly for investors and was filled with conflicts of interest. Consolation Prize England may be suffering the heartbreak of defeat in the Euro 2020 final, but the government's still planning to declare Freedom Day next week. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is expected to confirm that all remaining legal restrictions in England will end on July 19th. And in France, later today, President Emmanuel Macron will address the nation to lay out his plans for the next stage of the response to the pandemic. Melissa Bell joins us live from Paris. Melissa, glad to have you with us on this. I have to say, I know a lot of people there that are looking at their COVID cases rising, not seeing hospitalizations rise at the same time, but they're worried about the prospect of restrictions being announced today. What do we expect? That's really what we're seeing Europe-wide, Julia, is this race Mm. against the Delta variant, which is expected to represent 90% of cases here in Europe by the end of August, and a vaccination program that has simply not gone fast enough to prevent further restrictions being introduced in some countries. As you say, we're waiting to hear from the British Prime Minister about that potential full reopening, the step four of his program next Monday. What we think we'll get is really an encouragement for people to get vaccinated. We saw that it was already delayed by one month. In that one-month delay, seven million extra doses, whether they were first or second, were delivered. Uh, So that is a crucial part of the British strategy. What we expect from Emmanuel Macron is also an insistence on the idea that people really need to go out and get vaccinated. And this because really in a number of European countries, we're seeing that vaccination campaign uh, really coming up against the vaccine hesitancy we've been talking so much about these last few months, Julia, that is such a feature of uh, Europe, the European Union generally. Then there is a question of uh, the campaigns themselves. We heard Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, boasting over the weekend that 70% of there had been enough vaccines, I'm sorry, delivered in order that 70% of the EU adults could be vaccinated by the end of the month. She said that on Saturday. Uh, But there is a big difference, as we've seen, Julia, between the delivery of vaccine to EU states and then them being able to get uh, jabs into arms. And this, of course, with variants, uh, d- differences across Europe. We've heard from the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control last week that was warning that, look, 30% of European over 80s have yet to be fully vaccinated. 40% of European over 60s have yet to be fully vaccinated. And this with a variant that is progressing fast. And as we've seen, uh, can infect people who've had one single dose. So very much a race against time. And I think what we're seeing across Europe is that race in some countries really on the verge of being lost countries uh, like the Netherlands, Portugal announcing fresh restrictions, Norway announcing that it is delaying its restrictions, a doubling of cases in Italy compared to last week, 74% rise week on week in Belgium. The numbers are rising and the vaccination campaigns appear to be getting at the end to the end of where they go naturally with those people who would uh, rush to get vaccinated really uh, having done so already, Julia. Yes, Melissa Bell there. Thank you very much. And uh, despite the concerns, I am soothed once again by looking at your apartment while you speak. Thank you for that. (laughs) Tokyo now. I can't help myself. It's really beautiful. Okay, to Tokyo now, where a state of emergency takes effect just 11 days ahead of the start of the Olympics. COVID-19 infections are surging in Japan with new cases running at around 2,000 a day. 
The vaccination rate now stands at around 17%. Will Ripley joins us live from Tokyo. Well, I have to say 17% vaccination rate, and that's fully vaccinated, a lot higher than what you and I were talking about back in May. But these restrictions for me seem to focus on alcohol. They want people to stay at home and watch the games and not go out and congregate in places. It's absolutely right, Julia. And I think the prime example of that is what we're seeing with the first eight days of the Olympic torch relay. They've actually moved it off public streets. So now you don't even have the ability to stand on the sidewalk and watch the Olympic torch go by if you live here in Tokyo, unless you are invited to these private areas where only family and close friends of the actual torch bearers, along with a handful of officials, are allowed. There was a big storm that moved through here yesterday. We're standing right in front of the Olympic rings. This is one of the primary television positions uh, for the games. And, you know, within a matter of minutes, there was this thunder and there was this lightning. And there was a lot of chatter on Japanese social media that this storm is a metaphor for this games and what they could potentially mean for Japan. Because starting really tomorrow when they open up the Olympic Athletes Village, closed off to the media, by the way. They're moving in the athletes in, a, in an area that's going to be far separated even from television cameras, not even disclosing how many athletes are arriving. People in Japan are still worried that these measures that Japan is taking won't be enough to keep the general public safe. Yes, the vaccination rate is slowly going up. It took a long time for Japan's vaccine rollout, but people still feel overwhelmingly in public opinion polls that the Olympics shouldn't be happening at all. They're fearful, really, that their health could be put at risk, despite the fact that their own tax dollars paid for these multi-billion dollar Olympic venues that are now going to sit largely empty aside for a handful of VIPs who can probably hear their own echo when they applaud during the events. Yeah, it's not going to be the same, is it? It was interesting to see Wimbledon winner Novak Djokovic saying he was 50-50 on going to the Games himself. I mean, obviously, tennis is a specific example, but what are the other athletes saying, Will, just quickly? Any concerns from them? Yeah, I mean, you, you, and it is funny you mentioned tennis because Serena Williams also isn't going to the Olympics, although she made that decision before they announced about the spectators. There was an Australian uh, tennis player who said specifically the spectator ban was the reason why he didn't want to come because athletes really feed off the energy of the crowds. I was speaking with an Indian wrestler just yesterday who is going to come here and compete. She actually recovered from COVID, but she said it was a really big disappointing blow not to be able to have her family and her supporters there in the stands cheering her on. But, you know, for some of these big name athletes, uh, you know, who maybe have to worry about the size of their entourage, and that might be a reason for them not to come. But for the Olympians that are sometimes working two or three jobs to pay for their training to get here, they're going to come here and try to compete at their very best level no matter what. But not having that energy from the stands is certainly going to be a factor, particularly in some, some of these sports where there really is a lot of crowd interaction. Yeah, and Olympics like none other. Will Ripley, great to have you with us. Uh, thank you. Yeah. All right, up next, navigating the new space race as billionaires reach for the stars or at least lower Earth orbit. Someone's got to keep them and steer them clear of space junk. That company is Leo Labs, and the CEO joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. Space is getting busy. As Richard Branson recovers from a trip, Jeff Bezos prepares to launch. Meanwhile, Elon Musk's Starlink has shot nearly 2,000 satellites into orbit in the last year alone. That's a lot of traffic for a place called space. And remember, there's already a lot up there. There is an expected and estimated 250,000 dangerous, quote, man-made objects orbiting Earth 
estimates LEA Labs. The company is like the Google Maps of lower Earth orbit. It uses a network of radar to map and track space junk and to help private companies and governments steer clear. Joining us now is Daniel Seppley. He's the CEO and co-founder of LEA Labs. Daniel, fantastic to have you with us. What was mind-blowing for me was actually seeing that graphic that we just produced there just to give people a sense of actually what's going on in lower Earth orbit. How big is the risk or the lack of data that prior to you guys setting up, we had? Uh, Julia, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Actually, there is a big challenge in low Earth orbit that we simply don't have enough information about what's going on. There's a data deficit about what's being launched into space, uh, what that stuff is doing, and where all the debris is. As you mentioned, there are 250,000 objects, um, some as small as a golf ball, and they're all moving faster than a speeding bullet. So um, if we have a collision, it can create a huge mess in space. You're now the largest collector of, of data in the world. Just explain how you're collecting this data. Yeah, so um, our whole purpose is to inform the space agencies and the commercial satellite operators around the world. And to do that, uh, we have three pieces to our technology. Uh, we have a network of radars located on the ground that watch the sky around the clock. Uh, We have a cloud-based software system that analyzes all that data. And then we have a set of applications and data feeds that go off to customers. So those radars that are located on the ground, they're tracking thousands of satellites and pieces of debris per hour. Um, We're quite uh, proud that we were the first to build a radar in the Southern Hemisphere with the New Zealand uh, space radar. And we also recently opened our newest radar near the equator in Costa Rica. Has the necessity for this accelerated with all the interest that we've seen in space and the investment, particularly the private investment that we've seen over the last several years? I mean, I mentioned Starlink with Elon Musk. When you're talking about over a thousand satellites in the space of one year going up, we're sort of accelerating the amount of debris, surely, that we're creating and also heightening the risks of of some collision. Yeah, we're actually in the middle of a new space race. And this time the race is commercial. Uh, Mm. The majority of all the satellites in orbit are owned by companies, not by government space agencies or not by militaries. So all this new commercial investment is driving that new space race. Uh, You know, it was just amazing yesterday to watch uh, Virgin Galactic successfully (laughs) uh, reach the edge of space, a huge milestone in the space industry. And it really speaks to the growing commercial activity in space. You know, we're seeing new uh, tourism companies We're seeing broadband internet access delivered around the world from companies like uh, SpaceX, Starlink, uh, and others. We're seeing a lot of safety services being delivered from space, so tracking ships, uh, tracking airplanes, uh, and the like. So basically, we're building out a brand new economy, and it's here in low Earth orbit. Did you speak to Virgin Galactic before this launch? Because you do provide system warnings for people to say, look, you're at risk of some kind of collision. I mean, you can explain that technology too for, for your customers. But did you, did you have a conversation? Are you talking to SpaceX, to, um, to Blue Origin as well, Jeff Bezos's company before his launch? Yeah, so we uh, actually very publicly, we've been supporting SpaceX for well over a year now with all of their uh, Starlink satellite launches. So when those satellites get launched into space, we pick them up within a few hours at our radar systems and help them navigate safely and smoothly off to the uh, final orbit uh, that they're headed to. Um, You know that uh, the whole topic of collision avoidance is a really critical one. Uh, There's 
space traffic management is a core thing that we do. And um, one of the, the principal challenges is making sure we're protecting satellites from all the debris that's up there. And the numbers are quite impressive. So as you mentioned, there's about 250,000 pieces of debris down to the size of a golf ball. Um, but actually, most of it's not tracked today. About 5% of it, or 17,000 objects, are tracked today. And so there's a big lift to actually make sure we track all the small stuff as well. Um, on top of that, another number that's really interesting is there's only about 2,500 active satellites. So there's about 100 times more debris up there than active satellites. And it's critical that we don't make any more debris because that debris stays in orbit for decades. So basically, as we build out space, we're also building out a legacy uh, for our kids. And so we need to make sure it's a good one that they can continue to use space like we do. Are we being vigilant? Are the private companies that are putting satellites into space and being far more vigilant about not leaving debris behind to your exact point, and, and how should this be regulated? I remember Elon Musk a couple of weeks ago being furious about a SpaceX launch being delayed because he said that there's this gigantic area where you have a no-fly zone, and if someone enters, the, the space launch gets delayed. But, I mean, this for me seems like a, a critical thing that regulators should be tackling too. Are they? What more needs to be done? Yeah, actually, the uh, there aren't really rules of the road up there yet. There is a big uh, discussion about how we need to update those and more broadly, how we need to update a lot of the systems uh, that are supporting the space industry. Um, right now, you're actually seeing the rollout of a new generation of infrastructure. You know, for the past, say, 50 years, the space industry has been all about exploration, really going somewhere new. You can almost think of it uh, as Lewis and Clark exploring the West. You know, and after the exploration was underway, then we saw the construction. You know, then we saw the new towns, the roads, the telegraphs and the like. That's what's happening with the space industry right now. We're seeing the beginnings of this construction phase and it hasn't yet reached the Mars, Mars or the moon, uh, but it's here in the closest part of space, uh, low Earth orbit. And really updating those systems, solving this data deficit, getting more information out there uh, is going to drive a new round of evidence-based policymaking. And that's going to be absolutely critical so that it provides this stable investment climate. These companies know what the rules are. They know how to uh, keep their satellites safe and how to protect the space environment. Um, but we're just at the beginning of that. There needs to be a big focus on it. Yeah, I mean, it clearly requires a lot more investment, um, to your point, And we just have to understand what's out there first, which we don't yet. We're just at the beginnings of it. So um, exciting times. Daniel, fantastic to have you on the show. Daniel Seppley there, the co CEO and co-founder of Leo Labs. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Julia. Okay, Black Widow strikes at the box office. Americans are flocking back to the movie theaters to see Marvel's new blockbuster. Is the recovery well on track? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, a summer blockbuster shining bright and fresh signs of recovery in the United States. Marvel Studios' long-delayed Black Widow rocked the box office this weekend, setting North America's pandemic record. Paula Monica joins us now to break down the numbers. Never mind that. It wasn't just about the box office, Paul. It was also about the streaming capabilities. It seems like if you get the movie right, you can make money with both. And that's the key here, surely. Exactly. This was, I think, the important lesson, Julia. You had 80 million in box office at the theaters, so people definitely willing to go see this long-awaited movie live at a theater and get that cinematic experience. But 
For $29.99, if you're already a Disney Plus subscriber, some people felt that they were happy to just watch it from the comforts of their home and their living room. 60 million more coming in from Disney Plus revenue. So that's that 140 million total amount for the uh, box office, if you want to call it that. I'm not sure we can technically say that 60 million from people watching it at home is box office per se, but it's all money flowing to Disney uh, Disney corporate cash and uh, you know coffers and, and Disney investors. Are we bold enough at this stage to say this could be the new normal where Hollywood's just going to have to get used to the idea of streaming and theatrical releases perhaps at the same time? Or maybe is this movie specific? Did you see it, by the way? Did you watch it? I haven't chance to see it yet. I am looking forward and haven't decided whether or not going to go to a theater or watch it at home. But I don't think we can safely say yet that this is going to be the new normal. Black Widow was clearly eagerly anticipated by the legions of Marvel fans. And as you pointed out, this movie has been delayed uh, several times. So there had been a lot of hype building up around it. But Disney, which also owns Pixar, they streamed Luca to Disney Plus subscribers for free and skip theatrical releases. So I think Disney is still experimenting with what the model in the post-pandemic world is going to be. Our parent company, uh, Warner Media, HBO Max, also rankling a lot of theater owners because they are letting HBO Max subscribers for free get their new movies of Warner Brothers this year, as well as putting them in the theater. So the new Space Jam movie, for example, you can go see it for th- uh, you know in a theater when it comes out, or you can just watch it for free if you're already an HBO Max subscriber. They're not charging people extra the way Disney did with Black Widow. Yeah, I and mean, you raise a great point as well. I, we lack comparable data. The only reason perhaps why we're seeing this is because the numbers are so good. So we need uh, more breakdowns on more of these movies. Paula Monica, great to have you with us. And congratulations, by the way, on Italy. Boo for England. I wasn't going to mention Yes. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> okay, and finally, on first move, one of the dresses worn by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz and was lost for years has now been found. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions the dress, a prized piece of movie history, was found in a plastic bag at the drama department at the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. It turns out the dress had been donated to the school back in the early 70s and then got lost. And there's her name tag as well. There is no place like home. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next and we'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.